Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we wire your brain for weird and wonderful science. I'm Ian Wolfe. In this episode, we delve into the world of how neurofeedback and virtual reality can help people learn more things more easily. Luke Turner is a master's student at the University of Technology, Sydney. He's studying neuroscience, computer science and neurofeedback. Luke also works at a startup company called UCAT. They're developing a brain computer interface for paralyzed people. This conversation is about his neurofeedback project, but I will talk to Luke about the brain computer interface for paralyzed people for a future episode. Luke gave a talk at the Transhumanism Australia meetup. I met with him afterwards in a meeting room at UTS and began by asking him, What is neurofeedback? Neurofeedback is a new technique that we've developed to analyze what's going on in someone's brain in real time and display that to the user as they're performing a task. So let's say someone is trying to learn some sort of new theory or new piece of information and we can track what's going on in their brain using EEG or electroencephalography, which is basically just uh, small electrodes that are placed on the head to measure electrical activity of your neurons. And this is used to determine how you're feeling in the moment as you're performing this task, uh, what you're thinking uh, to some degree, your emotional state, your levels of stress, how difficult you're finding a task, many different metrics. And this can be displayed to the user on, for example, a screen. And then that screen can say, hey, you're doing great, or you're not doing so well. And that can help reinforce the experience. So you're wearing like a little cap of electrodes rather than something invasive that's actually in your head, sort of Elon Musk style? So both of those paradigms are conducive to neurofeedback. But if we're talking about able-bodied people who uh, don't want to get have a brain implant, uh, of which there's not actually a lot of FDA approval yet anyway, we're talking about a cap that's worn on the skull. So completely non-invasive, it just takes a little bit of setup time, but it's, it's not painful, it, it's just a passively recording system that sits on top of the head. So there's a lot of differences in the amount of fidelity that you can get between a non-invasive system and an invasive system, and the sort of brain regions that you want to look at you know, how many electrodes do you have and which areas uh, on the head are they sitting on uh, and how does that relate to what you want to measure. So some non-invasive caps will be appropriate for some context and then some actually won't be good enough to get a good enough reading. Uh, you actually need an invasive implant for that. And are these electrode caps expensive? So they've actually come down quite a bit in recent years. So... It really depends what your level of fidelity is. So the cheapest one I've seen was about 20 pounds made with a Raspberry Pi. So a very, very small unit. Obviously a lot of DIY involved there and not a lot of great signal quality that you can get. And then 
going up from there, there's cheaper consumer grade devices like the Muse or Emotive around the maybe two to five or $600 range. So those come with consumer applications like for meditation and things like that. But the cool thing is that you can actually hook into those Bluetooth signals that they're giving out and then put it onto a computer for further processing. And then going out from there, you have more research grade EEG headsets with you know 32 electrodes plus. And then after that, there's headsets that are also combined with other things like ECG or pupil tracking and VR, uh, and those can be in the tens of thousands. So it, it really does depend on what you want to do, but as technology does, it's becoming cheaper and cheaper. A lot of open source hardware, like OpenBCI is a great company that does a lot of that sort of stuff. So it's becoming more and more accessible to hobbyists and everyday people. So neurofeedback is pretty safe for people to play with at home? It's definitely safe. However, it's a little bit difficult to achieve unless you have a strong data science or software engineering background. So if you wanted to create your own neurofeedback application, you do need to understand firstly how to use that signal on a computer, what those signals mean, uh, how to clean up that data to remove noise. So, you know, when you blink or move your jaw, like it's going to create um, some unwanted noise that's not really relevant to what you're trying to measure. So there are a lot of hurdles to kind of creating your own application. However, there are neurofeedback applications that are out of the box. So the Muse, like I mentioned, comes with a meditation app that you can use. So I think from memory, it's a, it's a four electro system. So you have two on your temples and then two, I believe, on the front of your forehead. And the application gets you to meditate and it detects your uh, alpha waves in your brain to determine how meditative you're being in any given moment. And then it modulates the audio of what you're hearing. So the, there would be a rain sound or nature sound. And the more distracted you are, the more thunderous it becomes and the more chaotic it becomes, which is great. But <laughs> I found that that made me more distracted and less able to meditate. So, you know, I think it requires some calibration and ideally more points of contact to get a better signal because, you know, if there's not a great, if there's a discrepancy in between one point of contact and the other, or there's one part of the signal is weaker, that reading might not be accurate and it, the neurofeedback effect gets lost. So yes, it's safe to use and at times easy to use if, if for pre-built applications, but I have found personally that if you're not creating something custom made, the efficacy is questionable. <laughs> And you have a project to use neurofeedback in education. Yeah, that's right. So my master's thesis is looking at how we can use neurofeedback to personalize education. So this is also using virtual reality. So I've looked a lot at VR applications for learning and for education. And in my undergrad, I did a project where I use VR to teach people to use audio equipment, actually. So like a mixing desk with the idea being the level of immersion that you can achieve in VR and the simulated danger and risk of performing in front of a live audience is a really great way to train your nervous system and, and train your reflexes and train your skills to be able to handle that in real life. So this is already a pretty established paradigm of VR education being quite effective. What I'm trying to do is add a brain-computer interface layer on top of that, which is an EEG cap or similar 
to detect various states as you're learning and feed them back to the user, which to my knowledge hasn't been done much, which is uh, it's an exciting gap in the literature or, or an opportunity to be able to teach people in the most optimal way possible for their particular brains. So what sort of states are you looking to see how well people are concentrating or how focused or whether they're understanding? Yeah, so a lot of the studies I've looked at so far have looked at engagement, which is a really big one. So how interesting are you finding the task? Like how difficult is it for you? So yeah, obviously a low level of engagement is not going to produce many knowledge gains or skill gains. And if you're too engaged, then it might be not conducive to that process as well. So finding something in the middle and perhaps tailoring the content to make it more engaging. So maybe there's a type of music that you prefer, or maybe there's a type of visual that you prefer. And we could sort of A-B test a lot of the these different parameters and say, okay, well, when presented with classical music as a, an addition to this exercise, you didn't respond very well, you weren't very engaged. Whereas when we play heavy metal, you loved it. And you know, that would be the case for me, definitely. And so we can have these metrics in some sort of pre-training stage to say, okay, these visual or audio or oral or whatever else kind of cues are gonna be most appropriate for your level of engagement. And so this task will now be set up with those variables in mind to make the, the best task possible for you. So your subjects will have a bit of time of calibration to find out what suits their learning style and what assists their learning style. And then the system will apply that to what it reads from them as they go through a learning task? Yeah, that's, that's right. So there'd be a, a training phase to not only calibrate, you know, those variables that I just mentioned, but also just to train the model itself. So, you know, it takes some time, and this is a bit of a bottleneck that we encounter in, in BCIs, is it takes some time to individualize these brain recordings to say, okay, we can reliably test uh, Ian's brain for, for this particular thing. You can cut some corners by having pre-existing data sets and say, okay, across this population, these neural spikes in activity correlated with higher engagement, for example, and that gives you a good starting point. But then after that, you do need some calibration time to ensure that that user, when the system says that they're engaged, that they're actually engaged. And surveys and, and more subjective feedback can be helped with that as well. It's like, okay, were you actually engaged here? Or like, you know, was the system having an error, right? So I still need to figure out exactly how to calibrate that the most effectively, but there would definitely be a training stage to where it would set the system up for you in the, the best possible way. And then during the actual exercise, there would be further calibration. And this is where the real meat of it is, is this real-time calibration. So what you found engaging at the start may be different to what you find engaging 20 minutes into the exercise as well, right? So if for some reason the next part of it is more boring to you or you're just tired or there's many other factors that can influence that, then the idea would be to change that in real time to keep you engaged and kind of keep you in a flow state as much as possible or at least for the appropriate amount of time and extend the duration of you know the amount of reps that you can do with an exercise and the amount of skill or knowledge gain that you can get. Is this the sort of thing that might be very helpful for kids with learning disorders? That's a really good question. I'm not a psychologist by any means, but you know, from what I've seen, what I understand, 
I can't imagine that it wouldn't be. So ADHD, for example, you know, like focus and attention was a big issue and staying on task. So perhaps if the metric was not engagement, but actual focus attention, which is something else that we can detect, there could be simple measures put into the game to say like, hey, it looks like your focus is fading a little bit. Like maybe you should should, should, you know, reorient your attention or even less explicitly just make the game change in some way, you know, like a new scene or something, like something that actually re-engages your focus without having to nag you and tell you, hey, like, you know, do your homework kind of thing and, you know, get back on track. So that's really exciting. I think that that could be something that we could definitely see. I, I don't know how long it would take to get this kind of thing to, you know, children and, and schools and that kind of thing. Like, I would love that, but I would imagine the kind of hierarchy would be something like academia and then some cutting edge commercialization and then hobbyists and that kind of thing and then sort of trickling down from there. But yeah, I, I think there's some great hopes there for those audiences. You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send an email for science at diffusionradio.com or brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Tune in and discover the wonders we unfold. Explore in the mysteries that science holds from molecules to galaxies. We'll take you far and wide. Join us on the journey. Let your curiosity guide. Did you see the stories on the news of supposedly... Pupils in China wearing EEG helmets that tell the teacher with a little light on the front whether they're paying attention or not. No, I haven't seen that. Wow, yeah, that's definitely something that I would want to reference and look into. So there was a light paying, uh, like stating how attentive they were being. Okay, and then the teacher used this as like a punitive measure or... <laughs> yeah, okay. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that is like a, a really great technical introduction to what I'm trying to achieve although I'm trying to reflect that indication of attention back on the user rather than you know externalizing it if that makes sense so I would prefer if I'm telling myself if I'm focused or not and that's where this kind of like loop comes in where you don't necessarily need a teacher uh, all the time or at least you know only partial guidance from a teacher which is one of the most kind of beneficial aspects of, of VR as a training tool in general is you can cut so many costs and cut so many so much time that a teacher would have to spend with each student by creating these kind of like immersive, intense experiences that can be highly engaging and, and engage neuroplasticity in their students without having to have that teacher reading the light and saying like, hey, you should pay attention. So, yeah, I think that, that, that what you just described is a really cool step in the right direction, but I would like to have it be completely self-sufficient. So I guess that brings up what sort of education are you looking at? What sort of training programs will people be doing with your neurofeedback? So it's yet to be determined, um, and one of the questions is, like, a, you know, technical feasibility. So, for example... In my talk, I presented an example of archery and firing a bow and arrow, which I think is a really cool example because it's kind of like a, a motor skill that you can have a pretty good metric of, you know, your progress and, you know, whether or not you're getting bullseyes and that kind of thing. Just to briefly describe that, basically, I was hypothesizing that you could have someone learning how to shoot a bow and arrow in VR and if they're 
engagement is low or their cognitive workload or basically the difficulty of the task is low, then we can make it harder by moving the target away, moving it up and down, adding distractions, monsters, you know, different colors, lights, whatever. Some way of making that a little bit more difficult until we tweak it to the right point where they're making those optimal gains. So that would be one example of something that we might be able to do. Problem with that is with such a complex motor movement, you're getting a lot of noise, you know, so while we're trying to detect engagement, we might get a lot of blips and flashes and neural spikes relating to how they're firing the bow and, you know, all that sort of thing. So it's definitely a big engineering challenge to isolate those neural characteristics while they're performing something that complex. On the other end of the spectrum, you might have a simple memory task or something where maybe they're seated and they have to just flip over tiles and remember which one matched with the other one or something like that. That kind of task is probably easier to measure but a little bit less exciting to me because I'd like to see some industry applications of this, particularly with regards to dangerous skills training, pilot training, things like that where you have to learn complex skills and you want to do it in a safe VR environment and get it as close as possible to the real, real life situation. Save lives, make it easier, cut costs um, for employers and, and people doing training programs and ultimately make it more fun and more engaging. So would it be only VR training in your project or are you looking at things where people might just be working at a screen? I think it would be exclusively VR because I would like to really emphasize the convergence of these two technologies because I just believe there's so much potential there. However, there may be some small projects developed as part of the research to test each of those components individually. So there could be a prototyped VR experience that just teaches someone in VR with no BCI. And then there could be a BCI only task where these metrics are being uh, read and, and shown to them just on a 2D screen. And then the learnings from those could be combined to form the, the final task because, yeah, I think that's where the, the juice is. Are there any risks, do you think, with privacy or other or people misusing the information to stop you trying to learn? Interesting. So someone, for example, saying, we know how you can optimally learn and so now I want to to prevent you from doing that. It's interesting, yeah, no, I hadn't really thought about that. I think, I, I don't see it as a huge risk, but it's probably because I haven't given it much thought. Um, I think, yeah, like if you own someone's optimal learning procedure, maybe another risk is you can optimally teach them propaganda or something, right? Like you, you could, like effectively teach them something that like arguably maybe they shouldn't be learning so there is that side to it for sure but data privacy comes into this you know as a, as a major consideration particularly when you're dealing with neural data and that comes along with ethics approvals and stuff like that as part of my project I have to prove that I'm not going to steal people's brain data and use it for nefarious purposes and all that sort of stuff and yeah as this field progresses that's going to become an increasingly contentious topic it's like neuroethics I mean, you know who owns your brain data and what can they do with it and as it gets more powerful can your your brain with an implant be hacked and you know like all this sort of stuff which is uh becoming less sci-fi as the days 
go on, but I think still out of the realm of being like a major risk right now, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't prepare. So we might need a firewall for our brains. Yeah, well, that's it. That's it. You know, it's interesting because as people's technology improves for hacking your brain, like you need to upgrade your, your brain implant to not be hacked, right? So we'll have maybe neural cybersecurity experts, like things like that, you know, maybe um, in 10, 20 years when hopefully a product like mine is like employed in, let's say like a corporate training environment and everyone's, you know, doing their neural learning on the job, you know, maybe they would hire someone to protect their brain. So there's not people zapping your your corporate secrets or whatever else. I don't know. It's, it's a crazy, crazy world, but yeah. Sounds like a whole other project. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that, I think this development in AI and BCI, like, is kind of converging at the moment where the more powerful these AI models become, the more we can learn about the brain. And then the more we learn about the brain through BCIs, you know, the more powerful we can make AI models because we know how we learn and, you know, we can understand how a machine might be able to think. Not that that's the only way the machine may be able to think. There's lots of theories on that. But going off of our, our biology is like uh, is a reasonable place to start. So, yeah, that's kind of a whole other thing as well. But point being, it's the development of BCI and, you know, how big it's like slowly becoming is, is definitely creating a lot of opportunities and, and jobs in other sectors that we can look at. So when you complete this project and you've got people in a VR environment training with neurofeedback and they're they're doing better than if they were not using neurofeedback and this is your master's project what's going to be next great question i would love to commercialize the idea UGS is great for protecting your intellectual property and that sort of thing but ultimately i just want to contribute some sort of understanding to the scientific literature and to the scientific community because i think that there's a lot of issues in education at the moment. You know, kids are not very engaged. They're addicted to TikTok. They're addicted to technology. You know, obviously, I think technology is great, but it's using the right kinds of technology and making that engaging and, and fun for students, but still beneficial to their education. It's a big benefit and addresses a, a big problem that we're kind of seeing at the moment. And during COVID, like a lot of kids are falling behind. But even outside of that, you know, like you have a variety of abilities in a classroom and the teacher can't possibly cope with all those different levels of ability. It doesn't have the time or the money to, to be able to do that unless the kid's, you know, very privileged and goes to like a really nice school. It has, you know, those sort of facilities. But for a lot of people, that's not possible. So as this technology becomes cheaper and better and more accessible, my dream is that everyone would kind of have access to some version of this that would increase their learning gains to 5, 10x. Is there anything else you'd like to mention that I haven't asked about? The only other thing is if I could plug my other project, which is UCAT. So UCAT is a VR and BCI startup, and we work with paralyzed patients to try and restore speech and movement in VR. So the people that we're wanting to work with already have an invasive BCI, so they have a, a brain chip, which is going to give very accurate readings of speech and motor movement. We're starting with speech, as the recent studies have demonstrated that there's a really great ability for these invasive BCIs to produce accurate speech decoding from speech centers in the brain. And so 
our job is to put a UI layer on that in, in the form of VR and train these patients how to speak again and how to get used to their BCI and use it through a series of training exercises. Amazing. Well, Luke Turner, thank you very much. Thank you, Ian. Thanks for having me. That was Luke Turner, master's student at the University of Technology, Sydney, with his project to help people learn more effectively with neurofeedback and virtual reality. You can find out more about UCAT at www.ucat.app. You can listen to Luke on his own podcast on Spotify called The Luke Turner Podcast. Diffusion science, radio, midnight delight Technology's effects, shining bright Chaos wisdom, a beacon of insight Jazzing up our minds through the night And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please subscribe to the Diffusion Science Radio channel on youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8 C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2 MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3 MVR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7 LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2 XFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf, or join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? 
study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.